Doing a daily Bible devotional has been the best thing that I've done for myself. My time in the Old Testament only proves to me again and again and again that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things. When I'm reading the New Testament, I read it within the context of when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything in the New Testament is just an expansion of one of those two thoughts. Those are the two lenses through which I think with my mouth open as I read through the Old and New Testaments. Join me, won't you, for another adventure in Coffee, the Bible, and Page. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another fabulous day in the Lord's neighborhood and welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. I'm Page, your caffeine-imbued host. And as you now realize, that is my coffee. All right. Um, we are going to continue our jaunt into 1 John. We're going to hit chapter 2 today. Um, I'm revisiting 1 John, as I mentioned before. I did it in my, as a devotional a couple years ago. And I, even though I am, we were just getting to the story of David in the book of 1 Samuel, I felt compelled to go back and revisit 1 John. And it's really odd. It's just, but one morning I woke up and I really felt like I needed to read and look at 1 John again. So I uploaded or downloaded or whatever, uh, my podcast on First John. And I transcribed it uh, into text. And I started typing and thinking and talking to myself about it, like I usually do, thinking with my mouth open. And I, God just exploded this book in front of me it, more than he did two years ago. And so I am going to be investing some time into 1 John, and I'm doing a deeper dive into it this time than I've done before. I'm paying more attention to more commentaries and, and uh, studying. I've, I've actually got a, uh, a study course on Koina Greek that I'm reacquainting myself with because uh, I want to go a little bit deeper into it. And I'm discovering that 1 John, even though it was written 2,000 plus years ago, has an incredibly contemporary message to us. John was at the end of his life and he is laying down some very clear and concise instructions to the house churches in the uh, area of Ephesus where he was residing, combating what would become Gnostic heresy. And we'll talk more about that as we go through this book. But just know that he's addressing a couple issues here. There are false teachers that are trying to confuse uh, the body of believers in Ephesus. And John, who is their pastor and the last living apostolic representative, um, is writing some very strongly worded instructions. And so we're going to get to that. So in keeping with the reasons I believe that John had for writing this epistle, 
that is warning the believers about the heresies that were appearing in their midst, these false teachers were apparently attacking sound doctrine on two fronts. First, they were saying that sin wasn't important as it was connected to the flesh, which was going to die. The spirit goes on, the flesh dies. After all, it's the spirit that saved, and it's the spirit that goes on to the next life. So focus on things of the spirit. Don't worry about the flesh or sin. Two, false doctrine. The God of the Torah, think Old Testament, was an angry and vindictive God and not the God of Jesus. This false doctrine accomplishes, if it's successful, two things. Firstly, it removes Torah, or the words of God, as a primary source for understanding God and moderating our behavior. Secondly, by removing the words of God, Torah, as a foundation moral framework for living, it negates much of what the apostles taught and leaves plenty of room to reinvent truth. Now, when these pre-Gnostic heretics were talking about things of the Spirit, they're really talking about knowledge. They believe they have a secret knowledge, and they equate that seat of knowledge with the Spirit, and that's all that's important. So ugly. Here's the truth. Jesus is a living Word. He is God in the flesh. Torah is the written words of God necessary for understanding His will and His plans for our life. So keep those thoughts in mind as we continue. He starts off by writing in chapter 2, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, at the outset, this looks like two contradictory statements, doesn't it? I'm writing this to you so you won't sin, but if you do sin. This is one of the downfalls of the English language. English language exists on a single plane, where Greek and Hebrew, I call them picture languages, they exist in a three-dimensional language world, they describe the, they describe depth and height and width. They just ah, English is hard sometimes to translate into English from Greek and Hebrew. Um, though the English translation of this above sentence says, "I'm writing this so you won't sin." The original language in the Greek conveys the following. I'm writing this to you so that you will not continue to condone and live in and accept sin in your life. So John is telling them, I'm writing these directions to you so that you won't forget about sin, that you won't dismiss it, that you won't uh, count it as trivial. It's not trivial. It's very, very important. John's not just addressing the devastation of sin in a believer's life, but he's also addressing the heresy that says, don't worry about sin. After all, it's the spirit that's important. It becomes much clearer when you take into consideration the amplified sense of the words that the Greek gives us. Going from, I'm writing this to you so you won't sin, but if you do sin, to... 
I'm writing this to you so that you will not continue to condone and live in and accept sin in your life. Here's an excerpt from uh, the Expositor's Bible Commentary from Zondervan. This is really important. Lest anybody conclude from his previous statements that sin must be considered inevitable in the life of the believer and not a matter of urgent concern, since God forgives sin through Jesus Christ, John hastens to add, I write this to you so that you will not sin. There's no question at all in his mind that sin and obedience to God are irreconcilable. Sin is the enemy. It removes the believer from the light, prevents fellowship with God, and destroys fellowship with the children of light. The principle of sin as the power of darkness must be excluded from the believer's life. An individual acts of sin must be resisted. Where failure occurs, the sin must be confessed before the body and the Lord and then abandoned. And always the intent of the believer remains the same, not to commit sin. Of course, of course a believer sins. I sin. I lose my temper. I say things I shouldn't. I think thoughts I shouldn't. I eat what I shouldn't. I sin. There were then, as there are now, those who would say that sinning is not that big a deal in our life. But here's the harsh truth. Our battle with sin in our lives will continue to the day we die and when God brings us home. But just because that's the way of things does not mean we stop fighting sin. We must resist sin. Sin is very important and must be dealt with. But the glory of our life as believers is that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus. And as an advocate, he stands before the Father on our behalf. That's what an advocate does. Sin is not ignored, but it is paid for through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Sin is why he died. If sin isn't important, then his death and resurrection loses its value. If the early Gnostics are victorious, then the written words of God, Torah, think Old Testament, they're nullified. Our ongoing struggle against sin is no longer important, which nullifies the death and resurrection of Jesus. If the Gnostic heresy is successful in removing Torah, God's words, and the death and resurrection of Jesus, the need for overcoming sin from the church, what remains? nothing. There is no foundation for the church morally or spiritually. This is what John is fighting. All right, continue on verse three. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. John is hitting hard here. He continues, whoever says I know him, but does not do any commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, I've highlighted important words. Know. This is whoever says, I know him. This is how we know we're in him. We live as Jesus did. Back to the Expositor's Bible Commentary from Zondervan. The language here is probably a response to the opponents for whom knowledge, gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, was a key term. To these Gnostic opponents, knowledge of God came through mystical insights, 
or by direct vision of God. And at the same time, they were uninterested in moral conduct and unconcerned about human behavior. They were after the spiritual experience and didn't pay any attention to the physical. For the Hebrew or Christian mind, however, knowledge of God cannot be separated from the experience of righteousness. Consequently, there's no greater claim one can make in knowing God than to obey him. We can be sure we know him, the author says, if we obey his commands. For John, therefore, the test of knowledge of God is moral conduct. Other people in the New Testament would corroborate, Titus, James. There is no knowledge of God that does not also keep his commandments. So can you see why it's so important for these Gnostics to separate obedience to the words of God, to move it to the side? Because the apostles taught that if you truly know God, you will obey his commandments. The Gnostic would teach, we don't need the commandments. We just need these spiritual, mystical experiences. We've all experienced people like that in our Christian lives, I'm sure. I know I have. All right, he continues, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is a message you've heard. All right, what's that old message that we've heard? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yet, John goes on, I am writing you a new command. He's basically making reference to the fact that this command to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, to love your neighbor as yourself, is an old commandment. It's in Torah. It's what Jesus taught. But Jesus has shined a light on it, and the way Jesus explains it makes it feel new. Love God. Love your neighbor. If you do these things, the other 600 plus commands of the Jewish faith cataloged in the, yeah, Torah, takes care of themselves. As that old preacher told me once, if I'm loving my neighbor, I'm not going to steal his cow. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves a brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. All right, now he's, he's been talking about knowledge and, and, and loving. It, it, knowledge of God cannot be separated from moral behavior. If you're a true believer, knowledge of God is going to result in you loving your neighbor. It's going to happen. The Gnostics would try to separate all this stuff out. And how you behave in your physical self is not important to them. But here he says, John says, if you claim to be in light, you claim to be a believer, but you hate your brother and sister, you're not a believer. You're still in darkness. Again, John is doing this darkness and light comparison. Now, this is a big deal because at this time, one of the Gnostic themes placed great emphasis on light and dark. So he's using their language and preaching gospel to them. He's telling them that this is how we know you live in the light. If you love your brother and sister. But anyone who hates a a brother or sister is in darkness, walks in the darkness. You're not a believer. Our actions and our lifestyles are outward reflections of the inward truth. If the truth that is in you is the truth of God planted in you by the Holy Spirit, 
what will come out of that is obedience to walk with God. You don't obey God to become saved. If you're saved, you're going to obey God. Perhaps I can give an example out of my marriage. Um, When I fell in love with my wife, I met her. I remember that day. I was in high school, senior year. She was a sophomore. I saw this blue-eyed, blonde-haired bombshell across the room, and I was smitten. She's an amazing lady. I was not an amazing guy. I was... um, I wasn't a Christian, and I had lots of things that I did that shame me to this day. But when I fell in love with her, I changed the way I behaved because I was in love with her. Eventually, I quit smoking. Eventually, I quit drinking. Eventually, I quit smoking illegal substances. We'll just leave it at that. But I altered my behavior because I loved her. Now, I didn't alter my behavior to get her to love me. I fell in love with her. And I changed the way I walked and acted. And out of my love for my wife, my behavior changed. Our actions and our lifestyles are outward reflections of the inward truth. They can't be separated. James put it into very plain words in chapter 2 of his epistle. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? See, that's what a Gnostic would do. A Gnostic back then would, would claim salvation, would claim to be of the brotherhood, but they wouldn't act like it. They just thought high thoughts. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. He goes on to finish off that passage by saying, show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by my deeds. And he's being a little sarcastic, I think, here. He says, yeah, yeah, show me your faith without deeds. They can't show you their faith without deeds. That's how faith is expressed. I have faith in the chair that I'm sitting in, right? How do I express the faith of my faith in this chair? By sitting in the chair. I have faith that if I get in the truck and turn the key in the ignition, my truck will start. How do I demonstrate that? I get in the truck, put in the key, turn it, and start the truck. So James is saying, show me your faith without deeds. Right. I'm going to show you my faith by my deeds. The Gnostic folks were big on words. James is saying, I'm going to, sh- I'm going to preach the gospel by the way I live my life. Again, our actions and our lifestyle are outward reflections of the inward truth. Now, John is saying that if you're walking in the light and you're a true believer, you you will love. You don't love to become a Christian. You love because you are a Christian. What we do reflects whose we are. Love God, love your neighbor. That's the old commandment that's new. Then he writes something that looks to me like it's a song because it's got repeating phrases. 
All right. This next passage in this chapter, he has like six sections. The first three, he says, I write to you, dear children. Then he says, I write to you, fathers. Then I write to you, young men. Then he repeats the formula. I write to you, dear children. I write to you, fathers. I write to you, young men. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. When I first became a Christian, I was overwhelmed with one thought. I'm forgiven. My, my salvation experience was huge. A huge supernatural event. And to this day, I get goosebumps thinking about it. But in a brief instant of time, when I bowed my knee to him, I bowed my knee because I realized I needed his mercy. I was shot through with sin. And then he forgave me. I've told the story before. I'll tell it again someday. But just know that for the first few months of me being saved, that's all I knew, really. But that's all I needed to know. I was so overwhelmed by the thought that the God of the universe knew me, chose me, and saved me. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'd been forgiven by Jesus. It was a mind-blowing realization to me. Because of what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, my sin was covered and dealt with. That was huge. Then he says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. Now, see, a father's been around a while. He's got mileage. He's experienced life. He's walked with God for a number of years, and he's settled down in his knowledge. The secret, I believe, is in the word know. You know him who's from the beginning. The father knows him. He's experienced. It's an experiential knowledge. It's not just a head knowledge. It's not two plus two equals four. It's the experiential knowledge that comes from huh, experience. He's experienced over and over again the benefits of knowing God and being known by him. Years ago, I was having a discussion with my son. Now, he and I are both music teachers. Now, he is a formal music teacher. He got his uh, degree in music education. And I became a music teacher through the back door, starting teaching. I teach private guitar and bass and ukulele, music theory, composition when I find somebody who's crazy enough to want to do it. And I was telling him how jealous I was of him once because he got to study music education, which, ah, uh, I think that's marvelous. And he says, yeah, but dad, you got something that I don't have. I said, what's that? He says, you have mileage. He says, that says something. That's important. You have mileage. And see, that's the father here. Uh, the father's been around a while. He has mileage. He has experience. I've lived a life of since 1975 of, of being a Christian, being a believer, and I could tell you untold stories of how God has touched my life, how he has saved me for this thing or that thing. The time when I prayed and a tornado lifted up, went over the top of my house, came down on the other side of my house, saved the house. The time when my daughter was saved miraculously when I laid hands on her. The, the time where uh, I backed down a, a demoniac. Um... I could tell you story after story after story that it's those experiences. That's my mileage. And father, I've, I'm writing to you because you know him, you've experienced him. 
Then he goes to writing to young men. And I'm writing to, he's writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. You see, young men are the ones that go off to battle. They're the ones that go off to war, not the old men. I remember when I was young, I was very much caught up in spiritual warfare. I learned to recognize the enemy of my soul. I learned how to combat him. I studied the scriptures because I recognized that I was in a battle. I learned to fight as a young man. My struggle against sin is a struggle against the evil one, Satan. And I focused on that as a young believer. I kind of went through a crash course on uh, dealing with him and his wiles. That's the point of being a, a young man. So he goes on to say, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. All right. From this commentary, by the way, it's a great commentary. Having assured the believers of their position before God, that is, their sins are forgiven, they know the Father, they've overcome the evil one, John moves to application. He warns them not to love the world and gives two reasons. Love for the world precludes love for the Father. And the investment of love in the world is without meaning because the world is passing away. Uh, you know, when cryptocurrency first came out, I was fascinated by it. And I actually put some money into it as an investment. And I lost almost all of it. It was a small amount. It, I just put my toe in the water. But I began to realize that it wasn't something that's going to last. Very transitory. And to invest in something that's not going to last, that's going to go, that is going to go away, is foolishness. The love of the world versus the love of the Father provides yet another test of walking in the light. Now, he's told them, John is giving them test after test after test of how to prove which side of the fence you're on. Here, he says, if you love the world... And by the way, when you love in the world, that means you're loving the things of the world, the sensory things, the sensual things. The uh, We'll talk about that here in a second. But love for the Father is what we need to be focusing on. All right. Because everything in the world, John goes on to say, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. All right. Lust of the flesh describes the principle of worldliness from which the love of the world flows. Flesh refers to our selfish outlook that pursues its own ends, independent of God and independent of one's fellow man. The flesh not only becomes a basis for rebellion against God, for despising his law, but also connotes all that is materialistic, egocentric, exploitative, and selfish. It is at the root of racism, sexism, love of injustice, despising the poor, neglecting the weak and helpless, and every unrighteous practice. Lust of the flesh is doing what you want to do just because you want to do it. Whether or not it's in line with anything of God, you are just going to do what you're going to do. Now, the lust of the eyes... It can refer especially to sexual lust, but can also mean everything that entices the eyes. It is the tendency to be captivated by outward show and especially indicates greed and a desire for things aroused by seeing them. The lust of the eyes can refer especially to sexual lust. Oh, it's a tendency to be captivated by outward show 
indicates greed and a desire for things aroused by seeing them. Now, the key term in the third phrase is pride. All right, he set up here the pride of life. NIV translated as boasting. It occurs only here and in James 4. It describes a pretentious hypocrite who glories in himself or in his possessions. If one's public image means more than the glory of God or the well-being of one's fellow human beings, such pretentiousness of life has become a form of idol worship. Pride of life will be reflected in whatever status symbol is important to me or seems to define my identity. When I define myself to others in terms of my degrees, the reputation of the church I serve, my annual income, the size of my library, my expensive car or house. And if in doing this, I misrepresent the truth and in my boasting show myself to be only a pompous fool who has deceived no one, then I have succumbed to the pride of life. I have met people in, uh, there was a movement that was really, really predominant in the 70s. Uh, I, we called it the name it and claim it. And it, some of the preachers preach that the sign of God's blessing in your life is wealth, possessions, cars, houses. Um, and that became the focus. You were blessed by God because you had an expensive car. You were blessed by God because you have an expensive big house. That's the pride of life. And that flies in the face of a godly, godly attitude. He goes on to say, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Because if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But the going showed that none of them belonged to us. Apparently, there were people that left the church. And what John is telling those remaining, that if these people had really been in God's family, they would they would have stayed, but they left. And by leaving, they show that they never were really part of us. The commentary that I'm reading says, John goes on to teach the, the significance and the abiding nature of life in the community. If they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Those who have actually been a part of the divine life will without fail persevere in community. But in order that the true nature of the false teachers might be exposed, they left us. They went out from us so that the community might know that none of them belonged to us. Expulsion from the Christian community, we call it excommunication, for misdeeds was and is a serious act and hopefully lasts only long enough to allow for repentance and restoration. But what John is talking about here is unique. The departure of these opponents was not expulsion or excommunication, but a voluntary departure on their part. It shows that they were never truly members of the community. And apparently they left because their influence waned. They couldn't convince. And so they left and went to another place, either to another house church or to another community or wherever they went. I don't know. But they ended up leaving. Now, this is what's kind of dangerous in our churches today. In America, it's fashionable in some circles to belong to the right church. This results in a mix of folks, some who truly believe and some who are play acting. See, people can fake it for a time, 
And people can act like they're Christians, but eventually their true heart will show. In the first century Ephesian house churches, people who everybody apparently thought were believers, they left. And John is reminding the church of the fact that they left and that that shows that they were never part of the church. But you, you remaining ones, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all you know is truth. And all of you know the truth, excuse me. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, because no lie comes from the truth. Who is a liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So here's another test of false teachers. Are they denying who Jesus is? That's the Antichrist. He's giving them a litmus test. If anyone denies that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, if they deny that, they're not of God. They are a liar. It's a simple thing. I had a uh, Bible study I was giving. I was discipling about three or four guys. And one of them brought a girl he was dating. And she came in and, and sat down. And she proceeded to take out of her purse a napkin, a very ornate napkin, played it, placed it on the table in front of her. And then she took out fruit and divided it up and started put, placing the fruit out in special order on this napkin. And I knew right away what she was doing. That She was presenting, this is an altar to some other faith system. And I, I asked her to please stop doing that. And uh, she said she was a believer. And I said, all right. She says, and I love the word of God. I love the Bible. So I handed her my Bible, which she did not take, by the way. And I said, open it to John 3.16 and tell me what it says. She at first got really hesitant and then started to get a little obnoxious and angry. And I said, tell me something. Is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him? And then she got very angry. Her boyfriend ended up, at that point, taking her home. She left. Angry. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. John is giving them a litmus test. If anyone denies that Jesus is Messiah, they're not God. They're not of God. They're a liar. No matter how logical the arguments may sound that they present, no matter how powerful they present themselves in the public forum, no matter how brilliant and bright they are, if they deny that Jesus is the Christ, that is a litmus test for orthodoxy. As for you, see that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you, because if it does, you remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Now, apparently some of these heretics were trying to win people from the body of Christ over to their way of thinking. They denied the words of God, Torah, the apostolic teachings. They denied the deity of Jesus. They denied the truth about sin. Yeah. A long time ago, I had a business, a multi-level marketing business, and I won't give the name, but I did okay with it. 
I treated it like a business. It wasn't a scam, but it was multi-level in its makeup. And I began to notice that there were people that would hop from one multi-level marketing business to another. And then they would try to recruit people from where they used to be to come to where they were in their new endeavor. I called it sheep stealing. I've also seen this in the church world. Once some people I knew left their church and started a new church. They would go back to their old church and try to recruit people from that old church to come to their new church. Sheep stealing. As for you, he goes on to say, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Now, here he's referring to these false teachers. He says, you don't need these people to teach you. John reminds his readers of what they heard from the beginning, from his gospel, about who Jesus is. He's a Messiah. Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus is telling him here, the Antichrist is not just one person. There are many Antichrists. Anybody who does not claim that Christ is Messiah is an Antichrist. The name itself says it all, anti-against Christ. The spirit of the Antichrist, the core of it, is denial of who Jesus was. Well, who was Jesus? Was he just a prophet? Was he just a good man? Was he just a good moral teacher? No. He was Messiah, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That's the litmus test. Who do you say Jesus is? That's the reason John wrote the entire Gospel of John. He picked events and vignettes that demonstrated who Jesus was so that by the end of his gospel, reading his gospel, you are forced to make a decision. Who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis says that he wouldn't accept any of the drivel, that he, Jesus, is a good moral man. He said Jesus didn't give us that option. Jesus plainly stated that he was Messiah, that he was the Son of God, he was a Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was God. John, the apostle, believed Jesus was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. That's who Jesus is. Anybody who does not line up with that is an Antichrist. The spirit of the Antichrist lives in them. Now, as for you, what you've heard from the beginning, see that it remains in you. There is a discipline here. What have we heard from the beginning? Jesus is God. Love God. Love your neighbor. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before he comes. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Again, John is coming back to the central theme. If someone's in Jesus, they're going to behave like it. And what are they going to behave like? You know the answer. They're going to love God. They're going to love their neighbor. So can you see this pattern? He's telling people, look, if you're truly walking with him, this is the litmus test. You're going to love God. You're going to love your neighbor. Those adhering to the pre-Gnostic heresies John is addressing, they're lovers of knowledge and self. John is reminding folks to be lovers of God and people. And eventually, all of those who claim to love God well, some won't stick with it. They will walk away. According to the commentary, John's opponents, who presumably also claimed rebirth, apparently thought of it not in ethical or moral terms, but in terms of nature. That's a big deal here. They thought it was in terms of 
uh, their mind, the secret knowledge, where the true believer, rebirth means a change of action, a change of direction. Repentance means turning around, going the other way. I changed the way I lived because I loved my wife. I've also changed the way I live because I love God. My change is birthed out of my relationship with God. My changes were birthed out of my relationship with my wife. The Gnostics may have said, because they possess the divine nature, that they could not sin and were consequently removed from any obligation to the commandments, which the commandments were there to address sin. Don't, uh, don't steal. Don't covet. Don't commit adultery. Don't blaspheme. Those are expressions of, of the sin nature. And since they were removed from, they believe that they were removed from any obligation to these commandments. For them, the proof that they were born of God lay in their new teaching, which freed them from commandments, in their knowledge, which enabled them to reject Christ's coming in the flesh, and in their exclusivism, which allowed them to hate their brothers, forsake the community, and deny the commandment to love. Wow. I've known people like this. And this describes a lot of what we see in the Christian body today. So, that wraps up John chapter 2. We can see how John is really striking hard at the heart of this Gnostic, or what would soon become known as Gnostic, heresy. If you love God, you will act like it. And he's encouraging the believers. He's saying, at some point, these false teachers, they will leave because they cannot stay where the truth is preached. They cannot stay where the truth is lived out. Probably the most important thing I pulled from this chapter is that our, our lives, what we see coming happening outward in our lives is a reflection of what's happened in our life. I like the definition of baptism that most Baptist, Baptist preachers adhere to, where baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. John takes that to the next level. How you live your life reflects your inward change. If you love God and you're loving your neighbor, that's proof that you're part of God. It's a hard thing, but it's a good thing. Well, that's enough for right now. I'm uh, Paige. Here's my coffee. Hmm. Folks, I'm out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. So, what did you think about today's Bible devotional? Email me and let me know your thoughts at ff. OG at me.com.